Have you ever longed to escape reality or fantasized about stepping into someone else's shoes, even for just a little while? Hi, I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Hawley. We host CBC's Play Me, the immersive podcast that transforms theater into addictive audio fiction. Join us for a new season and disappear into a world rich with drama, where every show delivers hypnotizing stories and unveils intriguing characters with secrets. Play me wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. On November 29th, 1781, some 500 kilometers out into the Caribbean Sea, west of Jamaica, a massacre began aboard the slave ship known as the Zong. The events on the Zong are so bizarre and traumatic. Even now when I read about it, I still am shocked by it. This is a very uncommon case and deserves a reconsideration. As far as they're concerned, it was a murder. It was a murder. Uh, because enslaved people were counted as, as chattel. Whereby the voyage being retarded and the water falling short, several of the slaves died. It is said supplies of drinking water on board the ship were running dangerously low. And it was decided, by whom we're not quite clear, that they would reduce the risks to everybody by killing some of the Africans. There are those living Africans, girls, men, women and boys who are thrown person by person, hour by hour, overboard. The massacre lasted 10 days. In its aftermath, a shocking court case fired up the abolition movement in Britain. It provided the abolitionists with fuel now to ignite the abolition flame in England. Each year, the Zong story comes alive again in group readings of a book-length poem published in 2007. The poem is called Zong with an exclamation point. It's by M. Nerbese Phillip, and it's among the most intensely studied and written about works by a Canadian author this century. I think that Zong is an enormous work. There's been maybe, you know, three or four books that I've read over the last 40 years that have been the most important books to me, and this one of them. Song number three. On today's episode, the extraordinary case of a mass murder at sea and the work of art still rising from its depths. Hello, I am M. Nubese Philip, poet, writer, playwright, resident of In the Space Time of Toronto. November 29th is a significant date for me because um, that is the date that a massacre on board a slave ship in 1781 began. There was a court trial, the name of which is Gregson versus Gilbert, and it had ramifications for the abolitionist movement in the United Kingdom at that time. I wrote a poem called Zong based on those events. The name of the ship was called the Zong. 
Every November, I stage a durational reading of the work to remember the people who died on board the ship and whom we call ancestors in our culture. Thank you all for listening. And we are going to begin our reading now. We will be reading pages 3 through 36. comes from the first section entitled Os which means bone. It starts with an epigraph from Wallace Stevens. The sea was not a mask. We actually read the text through from the beginning to the end. And it takes uh, several hours. We usually begin around 7, 7, 7.30 in the evening. And we usually finish around 2 or 3 in the morning. And uh, that constitutes a durational reading. I first heard about the case, I first read about the case in a book by James Walvin a British academic a scholar. The book was called Black Ivory. Hello, my name is James Walvin. By the late 18th century, Liverpool was the, the, the dominant force shipping Africans across the North Atlantic. One African in five crossed the Atlantic on board um, a ship out of Liverpool. One of them was a ship called the Zong, which was a Dutch ship which had been impounded by the British off West Africa, 1781 and loaded with a huge cargo of African slaves. And as they shipped into uh, the Caribbean and to, towards Black River in Jamaica, navigation errors and uh, provisioning errors led to an extraordinary shortage of water. The ship is coming across the Atlantic from the west coast of Africa. It leaves Sao Tome. The captain is inexperienced. It takes maybe three times as long as the as the normal time it takes. They get lost. I am Dr. Dave Goss. I am the director of the Institute of Caribbean Studies here at UA Mona, and I am a historian. Um, it is said that somehow the Captain Collinwood got sick, well, wasn't feeling very well, um, and so mistakes were made. Somehow on the journey, they, they mistook Jamaica for Haiti. So if you understand your map, You'd have to pass Haiti first, then come to Jamaica. But they bypassed Jamaica and realized then that they made an error. By this time then, on the return to Jamaica, it is said that they realized that um, they, they had some leakage um, in some of the, the water, water vessels, right? There's a leak. Um, and so sometime around November now, November 29th, uh, they made a decision then. And it was decided, by whom we're not quite clear, that they would reduce the risks to everybody by killing some of the Africans. And the result was that something like 132 Africans were murdered, thrown overboard. So they threw 54 Africans first. And at this time, it was basically women and children, right? Women and children. Then on the 3rd of December, they threw 42 more Africans overboard. It's quite distressing when you read about it. 
they were throwing overboard women and children because they were less valuable so that when they got to their to their destination they would their cargo quote unquote would fetch more money because they were more male slaves or more men enslaved now interestingly it is said around the first of December by this time now rain started to fall right and so they were able to catch more water in their vessels but by the 6th or so of December, they threw another, I think, 26 persons overboard, which was completely unnecessary. The captain of the slave ship, a man called Luke Collingwood, was a very sick man when um, the Africans were murdered. He died very shortly afterwards. We're really unclear as to who decided what should be done with the, with the Africans. My own, my own feeling is it was a man on board who was traveling as a passenger, a man called Stubbs who'd worked for the Royal African Company at one of the forts in Africa, and who was heading back to Britain on a slave ship, and who had experience not merely of African slaving, but actually knew something about the laws of maritime insurance. The point, it doesn't really matter who made the initial decision, I think. Uh, What matters is that the crew carried this out without any kind of compunction, without saying, hang on, there's something grotesquely immoral and wrong about this. When the ship docked in Jamaica, they sold what was left of the of the cargo, as it was referred to. Then it went back to Liverpool, and there, the owners of the ship, the Gregsons, made a claim against the insurance because at that time, as we do today, we insure our property, and the enslaved uh, were seen as property, no different from horses or cattle, as the Chief Justice referred to in his judgment. He said, as much as it shocks one, it is the same as horses being thrown overboard. He said, though it shocks one very much. It was traditional that Africans were covered as cargo. They were counted as beasts of the field on board the ship. And the law accepted that they were covered by insurance as cargo. But what no one had ever tried was to claim for those Africans, not because they died naturally or because they were killed in an insurrection or because they drowned in an accident, but no one had ever tried to claim for them once they'd been murdered. Now, they initially won the, the case. Initially, the, the court agreed with the owner of the vessel against the insurance company and a claim of £30 per head on each person. So they end up receiving, well, they should have received over £3,600, right? However, the insurers, insurers disagreed. The insurers appealed, and that appeal went to Lord Mansfield in um, Westminster Hall, sitting with two of his colleagues. His judgment was required. Were the insurers obliged to pay up or not? He was trying to stick to this very narrow definition of the case, and that is, this was an argument about maritime insurance. The question of a mass murder didn't come into it. Gregson versus Gilbert, Thursday, 22nd of May, 1783. This is a very uncommon case and deserves a reconsideration. Where the captain of a slave ship mistook Hispaniola for Jamaica, 
whereby the voyage being retarded and the water falling short. I practiced law for a few years here in Toronto. And so I, I filed away the reference and thought to myself, I should go down and look at this case because it really jolted me when I read about it. When I did go to the law library at the University of Toronto and I found the case, I remember the moment I was stunned. It's, uh, it's a case report, which is the sort of foundational um, part of legal studies. You know, cases are reported if they have some significance. And as law students and lawyers, you go to look up these cases to find what the precedents are. I was stunned because it was two pages. And I thought, how could you report about the murder of 150 people in only two pages? Anyway, I made a copy of it and I brought it home and I filed it away, and then some years later, I began to look at it more closely. ...stated that by the perils of the seas and contrary currents and other misfortunes, the ship was rendered foul and leaky. So much of the water on board the said ship, for her said voyage, was spent on board the said ship. Here was the Lord Justice of England and two senior colleagues sitting in judgment about the murder of 132 Africans. But actually, they weren't talking about the murder of Africans. They were talking about their value, their cost to the insurance cover. Davenport, Piggott and Haywood argued there appeared in evidence no sufficient necessity to justify the captain and crew in throwing the Negroes overboard. The last necessity only could authorise such a measure. The letter of the law is what he's interested in and believes that without the letter of the law, without the law, everything else falls apart. Uh, he, he realizes that there is a growing sense in the country at large that there's something wrong with this system, something rotten about the slave trade. It's been pointed out by any number of people by the time he comes to this, uh, the Zong case. And what he doesn't want to do is to sort of tug away at the fabric because he knows that if he makes one legal gesture towards the abolition, the whole thing begins to pull apart. It has been decided whether wisely or unwisely is not now the question that a portion of our fellow creatures may become the subject of property. This, therefore, was a throwing overboard of goods and of part to save the residue. The question is first whether any necessity existed for that act. The insurers knew that, one, that when they reached Jamaica, there was, there was no illness on board, Okay, persons were sold and they were basically healthy. So there was, it was not a crisis. There was no disease on board. There was no insurrection on board, right, where you could claim, because you could claim insurance for insurrection, but there was no insurrection on board. And so when they carried the case back to Lord Manfield, he was so outraged to know, uh, basically, that they did not give full information because their argument was, that having less water on board could create insurrection. That was the basic point, that an insurrection could have occurred, and that's why they had to do that. But when he found out that they had enough water and that the third, the 26 that they threw overboard after having water, then the case now became more a, a kind of a, a moral case to that extent. There is great weight in the objection that the evidence does not support the statement of the loss made in the declaration. There is no evidence of the ship being foul and leaky, and that certainly was not the cause of the delay. 
There is weight also in the circumstance of the throwing overboard of the Negroes after the rain, if the fact be so, for which, upon the evidence, there appears to have been no necessity. If he's critical of killing Africans as Africans, as people, then he knows full well that that will actually begin to undermine the existence of the slave trade itself. Everyone's aware of the importance of the slave trade. It's economically important. And which major politician, to say nothing of judges, is going to stand up and say, listen, I'm going to help unravel this. There should, on the ground of reconsideration only, be a new trial on the payment of costs. We don't know, we don't know if the case was retried, but, but what it did, it provided the abolitionists with fuel now to ignite the abolition flame in England. A, the cold-blooded nature of the decision to murder so many people. B, the even more cold-hearted decision of their owners that they wanted money back from the insurers having murdered 132 Africans. And also the fact as well that societies like Great Britain, based on their law, right, could have sanctioned persons um, to actually make decisions, you know, to throw innocent people overboard in the guise that you could, you know, reclaim insurance. And it may fact that the law provided that each person was thrown overboard was worth 30 pounds, 30 pounds, really, and that they, 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 they got over 3,000 pounds. So what are the implications of the case? By 1787, about four years after the, the, the decision or so, the Society for the Abolition of Slavery was actually born. And to a great extent, Zong Massacre um, helped the abolitionist movement to speed up the process of abolition. We need to remember that this was not the only instance where slaves were thrown overboard. The Zong wasn't alone. We have evidence, and it's still being garnered by researchers, we have evidence of any number of other slave ships in the 19th century who ditched Africans overboard for a variety of reasons, not to be caught by pursuing abolitionist naval ships, uh, not to delivering uh, wounded or sick Africans to the American slave auctions. Uh, the, the deaths of Africans was a kind of economic consequence of the whole system. Yeah, it's, 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 it's quite uncanny because the original name of the boat was Zorg. I'm probably not pronouncing it exactly the way it should be. It's a Dutch word. Also, it's found in the Scandinavian countries, Z-O-R-G. It means care, which is really ironic. When it was being repainted in West Africa, the R became an N. So it enters history as Zong. Maloko. September. Hat. 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 Hadi. Underscore, underscore, in sinful, 
ideas for? Ritinai Fortisit This for forty Sins J Hi, my name is Fred Moten. I teach at New York University and um, I write about uh, you know Aphrodisport literature and culture. Zong was published in, in 2007. I was a, you know already a, a fan and student of Norbessi Phillips' work from before then, but uh, that book was uh, a sort of revelation to me and a disruption to me as well. Um, you know, I, I really thought and knew immediately just upon opening the book and looking at the first few pages that it was something different and uh, something new. And weeks, the more of Negroes Water. You know, on the most basic level, the book is not organized in the way that normal books are organized, or even the way that normal books of poetry are organized. Um, the words are not presented in the on the page in a way that's supposed to both follow and at the same time reproduce a kind of linear pathway of reading. The way the book is constructed is as follows. The first phase of it was I decided, looking at the two-page document, Gregson versus Gilbert, Thursday, 22nd, which contains some 500-plus different words, that I would lock myself in that text and only use the words that appear in that case report. And the water falling short, several of the slaves died for want of water, and others were thrown. Um, so, for the listeners, just imagine you have a document, a letter, you're only using the words that appear there. That process gave rise to os, which means bone. Os is the Latin for bone in the first section. And the poems are all numbered. Zong number 21 is. Being is, or should, is, 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 be, being, at the bottom of those poems is a what's called a footnote line, and below that, there are names. Because at some point in this process, I really felt the need to name the people who had been killed. Of course, they would have had names, but in the ship's manifest and in the documents regarding what was happening to them, they were only identified as Negro man, Negro woman, sometimes Negro child. Or you just have a ditto, ditto. There's a Negro man as one title. Then under that, ditto, 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 to just indicate the 
the repetition, repetition without difference in the eyes of those who are putting people in the hold. I am Christina Sharp, and I'm the author of In the Wake on Blackness and Being. I am professor of humanities at York University and Canada Research Chair in Black Studies in the Humanities. I think that Zong is an enormous work. Philip provides what the legal document will not, cannot. Um, she gives us names and breath and thought and care. She enacts what one of her poems, Zong 15, declares, which is defend the dead. Or have been. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also hear Ideas on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayad. When faced with the complex moral questions the world tends to throw our way, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. My name is Waleed Ali. And I'm Scott Stevens. We're the hosts of The Minefield, an ABC Australia podcast. And each week we try to navigate the moral complexities of modern life in a way that's unexpected, unpredictable, intellectually serious, but more than a little fun. Along the way, we're joined by a range of philosophers and thinkers who promise to help you see the world and the challenges we face in a different light. You can listen to The Minefield wherever you get your podcasts. The book-length poem, Zong, by M. Nerbese Philip, is unusual right from the front cover. Beneath the title, it says, As told to the author by Sitei Adamu Boateng. This immediately makes a reader question whose story is being told, and what the author's role is, and of course, whom these other names refer to. Sitei Adamu Boateng, the three names that have relevance to me and my family. And so I brought them together as representative of the ancestors. And part of uh, using the phrase as told to by, you know, the slave narratives, that genre of work that we know, usually it's uh, an African person formerly enslaved telling someone white who then writes it. And in this case, what I felt was happening, it was it was a story that was being told because that's one of the challenges of the work. There's a white male European voice there. It was being told by this white European voice to an African person who then brings it to an African woman who then brings it forward. So it was for me a turning on the head of that of that whole um, genre and that whole trope. Names matter in Zong, the book. But in 1781, on Zong, the ship, the names of those being thrown over the side were lost, along with the victims, as far as we know. Christina Sharp, a professor at York University, brings up a fictional story, imagining a rare exception to this rule. One of the books that I often teach when I teach Zong is Fred Dagar's Feeding the Ghosts, which is another imagining of the slave ship Zong, in which of the 133 people thrown overboard, uh, and this does happen, one person climbs back onto that ship. 
Nagara makes the person a woman and her name is Minta. And she, she climbs back on board the ship and survives the throwing overboard to be sold into slavery in Jamaica. Um, but there's a, a moment when uh, Minta and I think two or three other enslaved people are trying to uh, overthrow the ship. They're caught, they are beaten, they're chained to the deck. And um, the throwing overboard begins again on the second or third day. And there's a woman who's about to be thrown overboard. And Minta yells to her, what is your name? And the woman says, what does it matter? And she says, I will remember your name. And the woman tells her her name. And I think her name is Ama. And so Minta is holding her name, holding the memory of her name. Um, and that, to me, is counter to that slave ship hold, which is to destroy the name. Three. But. Good. Of. See. Philip transforms Zong from a proper name into Zong exclamation point. And that exclamation point does a lot of work. It marks urgency. It becomes a cry. Um, suddenly it sort of breaks into um, song, moan, chant, shout, breath, as I write. And this exclamation point making it into from an object into an act. Water. Day. One. Of months. When I found the book, I was really astounded by it. And, um, you know, I taught portions of it. And soon after that, I began teaching it almost every year. At first, students don't know what to do with it. They're still a bit intimidated by the text. They don't know how to read it. Sustenance. Lying. Lying. There's a lot of white space on the pages. Um... The words are broken up into smaller parts. So, for example, the word water, you know, W repeats across the page, sometimes close together, sometimes a W with lots of space. And so in Zong 1, the word water spread out kind of syllabically over the course of three lines. If water is not a word in your language, how do you sound water? You sound it, you know, by consonant, consonant, by consonant, vowel by vowel. And um, like what happens when you open your mouth while drowning, like the G that appears on that page begins to sound like the gurgling of somebody swallowing water. And sometimes the poems take on particular shapes. They might take on columns. They might take on what looks like the swirl of water. Um, but always there is this space on the page in which the black letters appear. Oh. 
I had a number of strategies. I, I would cut up the text. I would black out words, white out words, all different things, just trying to understand how do I make this text yield what I know is in there? And how did I know it was in there? Because when you study law here in in Canada, what you're doing is you're reading a lot of cases. And often you're reading cases as they go up the appeal ladder, so to speak. As the cases move up that ladder to the Supreme Court here or the Supreme Court in the U.S., all the messy, extraneous human details are extracted from the case until you get to, you know, this very sometimes small point of law. Yes, so Roe versus Wade, for instance. We don't know who Roe is. We don't know who Wade is. We just know that it decided what was going to happen with respect to abortion. Um, and so I knew, because I had studied law, that all the stories were locked in that two-page report. So that was what kept me going. Like, how was I going to break and enter that that document? And it's as if the process was that by immersing the text in the water that actually drowned them, this dry, desiccated, two-page legal report, it sort of regained life and the voices now now continue to speak to us. The throne and circumstance, the way and want. For my money, you know, one way to think about the book is that Norbessie Philip wrote it. And then another way to think about it is that Norbessie Philip recorded it. And um, I tend to think of the book as <laughs> the kind of ambient sound and ambient voicing that one might get if one crossing the Atlantic in a boat took a very, very, very sensitive microphone that could hear the voices of ghosts and let it fall into the water. Okay. In law should be. Was the proved should in fact was not. But it's more complicated than that. For her it wasn't enough to simply hang the microphone over the side, you know. She had to go down there too. Um she had to descend, you know, into those depths in order to record, in order to be told, um, in order to become a speaker through which that sound could be shared. And so um, that's an extraordinary, you know, gift to give. It's, it's an extraordinary offering. And it, and it obviously places upon the writer, the speaker, the vessel, it, it places upon that vessel an extraordinary, you know, ethical responsibility. Once you go down there, you discover, you know, that against the grain of every possibility, there's there's beauty down there, and and to record that beauty is itself produces an ethical dilemma because how could you talk about beauty? How could you talk about the corollary of beauty, which is pleasure, you know, within the context of 
the brutality of the conditions on, in, in which you've descended, you know. And so, that, you know, that's the ethical dilemma of, of art. Why are we making beauty out of all this misery, you know? See and perils. Stated that by the perils of the seas and contrary currents oh, and other misfortunes, also in the circumstance of the throwing overboard of the Negroes after the rain, if the fact is so, for which, on the evidence, there appears to have been no necessity. I felt what I was doing was carrying out a break and entry on the text. Break and entry is a term in law for a certain criminal charge. But it felt that way because I had set myself the rule I am not going to use any other words but those that appear in this document. What am I going to do? Then I thought, should I kind of go in and find other words? And so for the for listeners, if you imagine the game of boggle, you have a master word and then you pull words out of that. So I took each word in that document, that 500 plus word document, made dictionaries and then would pull out words from those words. So, for instance, I've mentioned the word Mansfield, Lord Mansfield. Mansfield will give you man, it'll give you field, it'll give you men. And so I constructed these dictionaries. At dawn... If, if, if only, if a yak 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 yak. I, I will look at these yum, these words, and they'll kind of come together and coalesce in little phrases and so on. I would sometimes want to use a word, and I would go hunting in the mother words to see if I could find the word. If it wasn't there, I didn't use it. Yes. So that was how I constructed the poem. Sun overhead in your hair, gold as corn first. Act third scene. Circe argues with Eve about Eden on the eve of murder. Rome mourns. means evidence, means mortality, means policy, means voyage, means market, means slaves, means more, means dead. I never considered myself a performer. I can just consider myself a poet, but somehow the text demands performance. And so over the years since I began performing it, um, I do these solo readings, at the end of which I usually invite the audience to read with me. I will have cut up pieces, pages of Zong, and they would be placed on the seats. I usually say that we live in a time today where we're not reading from the same page pages and that is usually seen as something really negative and often is but in this case what does it sound like not to read from the same page and yet to make 
a really beautiful and strange music. I didn't really feel the full impact of it until I started to try to teach the book um, to my students. I was at Duke University and I taught a whole course on Zong. I think it was probably 2009, maybe. And over the course of those few weeks, discovering the book along with my undergraduate students at Duke, um, it, you know, pretty much changed the way that I thought about poetry and then I thought about literature and, uh, you know, you know, pretty much changed the way I thought about everything. So the, the, the words are placed in ways that um, are designed to produce all kinds of gaps and air pockets and fissures and, and as she puts it, you know, space and capacity for upward movement, for ascension. And, um, and so the book is a kind of complicated palimpsest. It's made of layers. And so it's, it's just got a much more delicate constitution, I would say, than the average book. Um, but because of the way in which it's written, it, it presents a challenge because if you had been taught to read, you know, in the normal way and taught to read according to the, the typographical and, and sort of topographical conventions that the normal book adheres to, then you had to learn how to read again. And if you had also been taught to read in a certain sense silently, not only to read without speaking, to read without making sound, or even to read without moving your lips, but also to read within the context of a kind of, you know, sort of reverberative interiority, so that in a certain sense to read silently is to read to yourself, but also to read by yourself. If you had been taught that that was the proper way to read, then that was also an avenue that's no longer available to you. Um, and the closest thing I could say is that, it, you know, for me at least, it became clear that this was a book that I could not read by myself. I, I had to read it with other people. Um, and, and in that respect, it was a book that was meant, I think, to be a, a sacrament, um, a, a social sacrament. A ceremony. And it isn't passive at all. It is It is a very active uh, taking apart of these grammars of violence um, to make something else, sort of breaking them down into their, as I said, sort of syllabic or glottal utterances to also get at the kind of force of, of, of speech, the kind of force of, of thought, the force of the imposition of a grammar she talks about cutting and ripping apart Gregson v. Gilbert in order to to do this other work. It is a deliberate destruction of grammars of violence.
I did not think when I was writing Zong that I was writing something sacred. I don't think in that way. I think I feel like I'm not qualified to say what is sacred and what is not sacred. And I think we we find the sacred, quote unquote, in friendships and in very ordinary things. I do not want to give the impression that I I saw myself as creating this sacred work. It it was a situation that spoke to me because I had practiced law and I did what I have done with my other works, which is investigate it and write a poem about it. So no, I don't, I didn't, and I still don't have any great ideas about the importance of this work. Really beyond the fact that in the moments when we do the durational readings, it's a really lovely, uh, difficult occasion, but also affirming. And when I do readings, people are moved by it and f- find some value in it. Particularly when I see Black people and African descended people read this, for us, I think it's a way of us honoring this um, event that represents um, so much in our history, represents the erasure, represents the persistence of memory, uh, represents survival, represents joy, because at the end of it, the overwhelming feeling is, even though you're exhausted, this is in the overnight performances, there's this constant strategizing going on. How can I get through this? I find it onerous at times and wonder who is the person that did this. <laughs> the rest of lives exist But uh, at the end of it, um, it's a it's a strange, odd feeling of just being almost washed out, cleaned out, and it's not a feeling of being depressed or or anger, or how terrible this is, or anything like that. Time. Of Negroes. Or otherwise. Time. Sure. Of verdict. In the want of action. Observe the zoom. Afterwards. The time. In action. There's something you can create for the moment. A hole from the fragments, or this net of fragments. Africa. 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 Now the question Africa. falls upon Africa. enemies. Africa. Now the question falls upon enemies. Africa. Now the question falls upon enemies. Africa. In the between of day, Africa. a sea of Negroes drowned. Africa. In the between of Africa. day, a sea of Negroes Africa. Africa. In the between of days, Africa. A sea of Negroes drowned. The Zong repeats, it repeats and repeats, 
through the logics and the calculus of dehumaning started long ago and still operative. The details and the deaths accumulate. The ditto ditto fills the archives of a past that is not yet past. The holds multiply, and so does resistance to them, the survivance of them. Across time and space, the languages and apparatus of the hold and its violences multiply. So too, the languages of beholding. In what ways might we enact a beholdenness to each other, laterally? Quote, beholden, to hold by some tie of duty or obligation, to retain as a client or person in duty bound, end quote. Beholden in the wake, as, at the very least, if we are lucky, an opportunity in our black bodies to try to look, try to see. Is, was, is, is, should, and have been, is there, was there, Agunade, Omotayo, Yewande, Abibola, Sonubi, Abeke. What I would say is, you know, on the most basic level, for some people, for the for the for the devoted reader, you know, the event becomes something other than an object of study. Okay, we become involved in it. Okay. Um, and uh, so, so that's that's what makes it different. It's not it's not because it's new. It's not because it's oh we didn't know about that before. It's like no, it's, you know, it's, it's rather if you thought about it, if you thought you knew about it before, you realize you didn't know anything because it's in some fundamental sense it's like it's not really limited to the relatively vulgar operations of knowing. <laughs> you know, it's it's. Uh, it expands into the much more refined operation of the feeling. Recently, as in the last maybe year or so, the most two years, I've come to understand the most important thing happening in Zong are the silences. It's not the words. The silences are where, are where the honoring comes in. And the silence is also a space of potentiality. Anything is possible in that silence. I felt I had to ask permission of the ancestors to bring these voices forward. So I traveled to Ghana and I speak to some traditional uh, leaders there, traditional spiritual leaders there. Um, the challenge for me, though, was that on my way back from Ghana to, to England, I realized that I had to go to Liverpool to also ask permission of the European ancestors. Because remember the stories about all the people on board the ship. And that was a challenge. Um, and I think that without laying any claim to being a spiritual, enlightened being or anything like that, far from it, 
I think on that plane, what we concern ourselves with here in terms of issues like race, which are serious issues, I don't think that exists. I think a soul is a soul is a soul. And I felt I needed to do that as well. And so I went to Liverpool, I bought some whiskey. <laughs> I went down to the harbour and I poured a libation, which is a part of African culture, and asked simply in my own way that I be allowed to bring their voices forward. So that was the process that, um, that happened. Um, and that's what I mean about it being an exercise in abdication of the, of the ego. Yeah, I talk about unauthoring the book and that this is a work that has to be told, but it can't be told. And the only way you can tell it is through untelling it. What I mean is that we will never know exactly what happened on board that ship, just as we'll never know what happened totally in slavery. It was such a, a long-lasting and um, horrendous experience. For instance, the logbook of the Zong was lost. There's never any factual evidence of what happened. So it can't be told, but it must be told, yes? And, and only through the untelling of it. You were listening to a documentary about M. Norbese Phillips' book-length poem, Zong. Each year, a collective reading event occurs on or around November 29th, the first day of the massacre in 1781. Go to our website, cbc.ca slash ideas, for links to information about this year's events. This episode was produced by Tom Howell. Thanks to Christina Sharp, Dave Goss, James Walvin, and Fred Moten. Thanks also to Michael Neald for playing the part of Lord Justice Mansfield. You heard extracts from recorded readings and performances of Zong. The readers included Otonia Julianne Okot-Betek, Diane Roberts, Richard Douglas Chin, Edna Carolina Gonzalez Barana, Ola Mohammed, Curtis Santiago, Adam Philogen Heron, Natalie Wood, Amber Rose Johnson, Kuda Matamba, and of course, M. Nurbese Philip. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Web producer, Lisa Ayuso. Senior producer, Nikola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas, and I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.